Why does NATO continue to expand its membership long after the Soviet Union collapsed, and what is its endgame? Why is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a nominally defensive military organization, launched wars on three separate continents? How could a Canada outside of NATO truly become a force for peace? Are the voices of peaceful protest at last week's Liberal government cabinet meeting censored by mainstream media? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are exploring the prospect that NATO may today actually be a malevolent force on the global stage and that Canada and the world should consider abandoning it. In our first half hour, Rick Rosoff, a longtime geopolitical analyst and critic of NATO, offers his perspectives on the nature of the transnational beast and where it may be headed in the future. This is followed by an interview with lawyer, journalist, and activist Dimitri Lascaris on the role Canada could be playing as an advocate for peace outside of NATO. We finish off the program with anti-war activist Ken Stone of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War talking about a recent action his group organized in the city outside the building where Prime Minister Trudeau and his cabinet were meeting. On this week's program, Peace Not War, Canada, a voice for peace outside of NATO. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 27th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'd like to acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The practices have not only been colonial, but genocidal, and on a show about peace, we can begin by re-establishing relations based on mutual respect, not on continuing on the basis of past crimes. We now bring you this week's news notes, a sequence of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Is English now the preferred language of the German government? Or does Baerbock intend her message for a larger audience than Germany's bureaucrats? Imagine a USG political careerist standing on the floor of the Senate or House speaking to his colleagues in German or Kalkwadi. If we add this to Merkel's revelations that they were strengthening Ukraine and did not count on the Minsk agreements, then we are talking about a war against Russia that was planned in advance. Don't say later that we didn't warn you, responded Maria Zakharova, spokesperson for the Russian Foreign Ministry. That comes from the article, German Foreign Minister, We Are at War with Russia, 
by Kurt Nemo, posted January 26th, originally published on the author's blog site, Kurt Nemo on Geopolitics. When Liu He talks about, quote, spurring of China's domestic demand, unquote, he's sending a direct message to global exporters, Eastern and Western, focusing on this ever-growing, gigantic mass of Chinese middle-class consumers. On the geopolitical and geoeconomic big picture, Liu He was diplomatically circumspect. He just let it filter that, quote, we believe that an equitable international economic order must be preserved by all, unquote. Translation, the New Silk Roads, or BRI, as well as the integration efforts of BRICS+, Plus, the SCO, and the EAEU will be on the forefront of Chinese policy. And that brings us to what should become one of the key stories of the Year of the Rabbit, the renewed drive along the new Silk Roads. That comes from the article, Can You Smell What the Year of the Rabbit is Cooking? by... Pepe Escobar, posted January 25th, originally published on Strategic Culture Foundation. Due to heavy losses which exceed all previous ones, radical methods are used to replenish the numbers of troops. According to local sources, the Ukrainian authorities plan to call up 10,000 people from Transcarpathia by spring, Hungarian journalists told Euro Weekly, the Zelensky regime has apparently taken a page from the British Royal Navy during the Age of Sail. The British employed press gangs to cruise ships during war and peacetime. Refusal to be impressed resulted in a one-way trip to the gallows. That comes from the article, Zelensky regime to forcibly conscript Hungarians in Transcarpathia by Kurt Nemo, posted January 25th, originally published on the author's blog site, Kurt Nemo on Geopolitics. Without you, without your loving hand extended to the poor little child that I was, without your instruction and example, none of this would have happened. I don't make much fuss about this kind of tribute, but this is at least an opportunity to tell you what you were and still are to me and to assure you that your efforts, the work, and the generosity you put in are always alive in one of your little pupils, who, despite his age, has not ceased to be your grateful disciple. I embrace you with all my heart. Albert Camus. That comes from the article, The Teacher's Task, Understanding and Helping, by Dr. Rudolf Hansel, posted January 25th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. NATO has been building its forces. It could potentially uh, finally take on Russia, although it is also working up strong.
structure and in Africa and Latin America and, and what plans are in the works for China and Taiwan. Will NATO potentially come, become dismantled due to discontent among the membership? Will it effectively dismantle the planet? Rick Rosoff is an author and geopolitical analyst. He's been actively involved in opposing war, militarism, and interventionism for over 50 years. He manages the Antebellum and for Peace Against War website. Welcome back to the Global Research News Hour, Rick. It's, it's good to have you back on. Yeah, the feeling is mutual, Michael. Michael, thank you for inviting me. After 30 years, uh, they made it to Russia's border. Russia said a long time ago, Ukraine is a red line. Yet now that NATO has signed on, uh, 14 new members of NATO, and uh, they're getting within a five-minute nuclear missile strike of Russia. What exactly is the end game of NATO with regard to Russia, a country that, that seeks its ability to act independently of the interests of the Anglo-American alliance? I'm sure I'm not uh, cognizant. I'm not privy to the inner workings of uh, you know, NATO hierarchy in terms of what their plans are. I can only go but based on what they state at their summits and in their formal documents. They have identified their mission as being global. That's been the case for quite a while. Incidentally, a good deal of what you've said. Uh, goes back at least as far as 1999, which is, say, 24 years ago. Uh, we would not be having this discussion at all, Michael, in my estimate, if people had paid attention to what some of us have been trying to tell the world in the last quarter century. You know, for example, uh, in 1999, while NATO launched its full-fledged, full first full-fledged war against the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, in the very middle of it, NATO celebrated its 50th year Jubilee Summit in Washington, D.C., the first ever NATO summit held in America, incidentally. And in the midst of that, inducted three new members, the first three that uh, were dragooned into the military bloc since the end of the Cold War. They were the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland. Poland borders Russian territory. It borders the uh, oblast of uh, Kaliningrad. So uh, this is nothing new. You know, the fact that uh, peace activists in the West and the world at large, and for that matter, the Russian government chose to allow all this to happen for a quarter century uh, before responding, I think is a fact that we may want to look at. Um, the, you are correct about 14 new members or shortly be two more, Finland and Sweden. That will mean that NATO, since the war against Yugoslavia in 1999, has doubled its, pre, uh, its Cold War membership from 16 to 32 countries. It also has an additional 40 partners on every uh, in, uh, partners and uh, allies on every inhabited continent. They have a member in South America. They're cultivating others. Uh, Australia is, is a partner of, I, I should say, partner in the case of uh, Colombia as well as Australia. And I can go all the way down the line. But, you know, I've been saying this for 25 years, and I, I don't think that people uh, really take full cognizance of this. And I wonder if it hasn't progressed to such a point uh, that uh, simply exposing it is, is not going to be sufficient. Uh, other actions will be taken. But it's really a tragedy that for the first time in the history of the world, a uh, multinational global uh, seemingly eternal military bloc has been allowed to uh, to grow and expand without uh, hardly a peep from the world. Yeah, it's it's almost as if it's a, like a cancer or something like that. I mean, it has a life of its own in, in a sense, wouldn't you say? It, it, you know, let's let's look at geopolitics and history a little bit. Uh, you know, people in, in our day to day reportage, you know, we tend to forget these coordinates, right, of time and space. And, and we tend to look at every uh, 
incident that's kind of a discrete particular and one that simply succeeds another. And, you know, you don't get very far that way in, in, in military matters, for example, but certainly not in geopolitical ones. Uh, we've got to look at the fact that with the dissolution of the formal dissolution of the Warsaw Treaty Organization, its formal name, incidentally, the Warsaw Pact, and of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics in 1991, you know, I think any halfway astute observer, and evidently there weren't many, uh, at the time would have seen that this created an international vacuum. You know, the French writer Rob Lay reminds us that nature abhors a vacuum, and that if the whole planet is then opened up to U.S. and NATO penetration and domination, then, you know, why would we not have expected the U.S. and its NATO allies to do exactly what it's done uh, in the last 32 years. And in fact, you know, they have. Uh, on this whole question of NATO, one of your questions, the lead-in questions was, uh, clever play in words, I might add, is NATO going to be dismantled or will it dismantle the world? Uh, I want to say because this June will mark the 400th anniversary of the birth of the philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal. And I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with uh, what's called Pascal's wager. It, in essence, says that uh, a person has less to lose and believing in the existence of a God if he doesn't exist uh, than not believing in him if he does. That's Pascal's wager. And I've argued for the past quarter century is, uh, you know, I've heard too many premature, to paraphrase Mark Twain, uh, you know, too many premature announcements of the death of NATO over that period of time. And I see it growing larger and, and more powerful as time goes on. So I'm going to play a, Pascal, a variation of Pascal's wager. I'm going to say it's far safer for us, those of us who opposed war, uh, those who oppose certainly the prospect of a nuclear uh, encounter between Russia and the United States, the world's two major nuclear powers, that uh, we would be probably better advised to err in the direction of caution and assume NATO is not a paper diet, uh, uh, even if it is, than to assume it's a pushover and it's already been defeated by Russia if it's, it's, if it's not a pushover and it hasn't been defeated by Russia. Uh, that is my point of view. I understand it's not everyone's. Uh, and it's not everyone um, uh, that of everyone in global research, I understand, but I want to be quite you know, candid. That's my perspective. I think uh, there's far more incentive for us to do something to, uh, you know, information wise and otherwise, if we believe NATO is a threat, uh, then if we believe NATO is simply a paper organization, we can go back to sleep and hope everything works out. I don't believe that's the case. Well, so if, if it's not a paper tiger, I mean, what do you think is going to happen with regard to Ukraine? I mean, could they actually win and then, I don't know, then go on into to uh, Moscow or, or well, how do you see it resolving itself? You know, I, I'm not a crystal ball gazer okay. and I'm not somebody, there are several on the internet, I'm not somebody who refers to myself as an oracle, for example. Uh, and I, I'm rather suspect of people who, you know, preen themselves on, on such credentials. I, you know, that, that uh, okay. the Temple of Apollo at Delphi might, be, might have been able to issue prophecies. I'm not one who does. Uh, I can only say this. I mean, this very day we're speaking, um, uh, Joe Biden flanked by Secretary of State Tony Blinken and uh, Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin announced that 31 uh, U.S. Abrams main battle tanks are going to Ukraine. And at the same time, Olaf Schultz, in, uh, the Chancellor of Germany, announces 14 Leopard 2 tanks are going. And he estimates uh, by Associated Press calculations that there will soon be close to 90 uh, main battle tanks from NATO nations heading to Ukraine. So that, to me, doesn't suggest a paper type. Now, I know an argument could be made that why only 90 and not 900? Uh, I'm not 
willing to get involved in that. Uh, you know, military tactics are not my expertise, though I understand they seem to be of a lot of uh, commentators. Uh, I think what we need to know right now is that uh, there was a meeting last week in Ramstein, Ramstein Germany, uh, officiated over by the head of the Pentagon, Lloyd Austin, and the head of the U.S. military. Uh, you know, the uh, commander of the uh, uh of the U.S. military forces, General Mark Milley, and they officiated over a meeting of the defense chiefs of 50 nation, that's 5-0. There are 30 NATO members, that means 20 other countries were there. That's rather a formidable assembly of defense chiefs. So you know, let us acknowledge that. That, that it hasn't happened until recent years, and it's always happened under the auspices of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, you know, try to, you know, ask your listeners, try to imagine you know, how many belligerent nations are, have been in any other war in human history, in World War II even. It's not 50, I can assure you. Uh, so you now have 50 nations, including, by the way, most pronouncedly, uh, South Korea and Japan that are offering up major, uh, you know, arms uh, uh, transfers uh, to Europe. And, uh, for example, South Korea has, has signed a contract for almost 200 uh, tanks and howitzers to Poland in order to free up Polish arms to be sent to the Ukraine and so forth. You know, we need hours to, to really delve into this, uh, you know, to the extent that uh, the topic justifies. But I just want to create a picture. This is not. And, you know, by the way, you said what, uh, something about winning. You know, we have to define our terms. What do we mean by victory? Uh, one of the things as a lifelong pacifist I have to tell you I subscribe to on my um, website, literary website uh, on peace and war issues, um, I have a quote, you know, by Anatole France on the top, the French writer that says, uh, war is a crime for which victory is no atonement. Um, I, as a pacifist, uh, do, I'm not really concerned about who wins a war. I think war should be stopped. And I don't think they should be waged in the first place. But uh, if we want to talk about from the Western perspective, what they consider a victory, no, I don't believe it's, uh, you know, German tanks coming into, uh, you know, into Kiev. Uh, I believe it may be very much what uh, some of us had warned about, uh, you know, la last year. Um, and, uh, actually, not last year at all, at the end of 2020, when uh, people like Max Boot and people like Mark Brzezinski, son of the infamous Zbigniew and br brother of Ian Brzezinski, who's now U.S. ambassador to Poland, I'm sure in large part engineering the war efforts in Ukraine, uh, when both of them were, you know, quite clearly indicating that they would like to have Russia... Uh, sucked into a, uh, a quagmire much after the Afghan model. Max Boot was quite open about that parallel. Uh, so from the Western perspective, I mean, at a certain point, you know, we not only don't want to underestimate our enemy, but we want to try to understand uh, with the U.S. and NATO, uh, what their motives are and what their uh, intended, what the intended consequences of their actions are. You know, I'm just throwing this out for speculation. Again, I'm not an oracle. Uh, I'm throwing out for speculation the possibility that what the U.S. and NATO really want is simply to uh, have the Ukrainian uh, regime of Zelensky hold out, wage a lengthy war of attrition, um, weaken Russia militarily, cost Russia substantial casualties, 
perhaps tarnish Russian uh, Russia's image in the world diplomatically. Uh, but with something I've been arguing for over 20 years, they want to cut Russia out of the European energy market. The European Union is the second largest consumer of energy in the world, next to the United States. If the U.S., through a combination of uh, deals in North Africa, the Middle East, including Iraq and Syria, but particularly in the Caspian Sea with Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan and Turkey, uh, can arrange to supplant Russian oil and gas in Europe, they've delivered a body blow uh, to the Russian economy. We have to be serious about these matters, right? Wishful thinking is fine and good, but I think we have to prepare for worst case scenarios. So uh, what does a victory mean for the West? I think a victory... A victory for the West is anything other than a Russian military victory. And, uh, you know, of the sort that's been predicted by a number of people for 11 months, if you recollect. And uh, so uh, I, I'm not, I can't really answer that question. I think we have to uh, uh, demand a cessation of hostilities. Uh, there, there has to be an end to the fighting. That's, that's the chief objective. I don't see that anyone is a benefactor from this war. I really don't well yeah, I, I, I'm not going to ask you to maybe like be a, a military predictor or anything, but I, I, in terms of the, the, the plans, uh, I mean, I know maybe you can comment on uh, how earlier this month an article in Foreign Policy magazine featured 12 essays uh, authored by David Petraeus, uh, former NATO Secretary General uh, Anders Fogh-Moraz Musman and, and others speaking, spelling out that China was next in line after Russia. I mean, foreign policy chief uh, editor Stefan Thale wrote in the introduction, and this is a quote, drawing the right lessons from the first 10 months of the Russian invasion, then not only matters for the survival of Ukraine, it is also vital for deterring and preventing a future conflict. And if necessary, fighting one emphasis of my own, the most obvious potential hotspot and one that involves even greater states is, of course, Taiwan. That's yeah, a quote. And Mr. Rosoff, I mean, do you see this kind of rhetoric uh, being a prescription for the future? I mean, maybe feeding fury at China with some imagined incident or other. I mean, I'm not asking you to, to, to predict the future, but I mean, in, in terms of the overall layout, I mean, how, how could this war realistically be staged by NATO? A couple of things, you know, in its last summit in Madrid, Spain, in uh, the summer of last year, you know, NATO and in the documents leading up to that and the, you know, the, uh, the, the document coming out of it and its new strategic doctrine, that a strategic, strategic concept, uh, that NATO quite openly for the first time identified China as a rival. And as a threat to, to use its own peculiar terminology, the rules-based international order, placing it in the same category with Russia for the first time. And again, just, you know, so if, uh, we have to flash back a while. Uh, we are talking about the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, right? That now is identifying China on the opposite end of the world as a military rival and particularly, you know, uh, potentially as an adversary. Uh, in its documents, and, you know, NATO is quite, uh, one thing I'll give them credit for, they're quite proud of their crimes and their aspirations and their ambitions. And they uh, they do publicize what they uh, are interested in doing. And, uh, you know, one of them is they identify Russia and China foremost, South Korea, Iran secondarily, and then nations uh, like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua as being, you know, countries that they want to isolate. Uh, so it should be no surprise. I mean, they've been signaling for years that they're going after China, though that is a... Uh, um, a watershed uh, development. It's one that one would not have anticipated 
uh, until recently. It's also, you know, but with uh, the second and to date uh, one of only two NATO summits held in the United States here in Chicago in 2012, uh, NATO formally launched uh, a, a new program. And it's the only partnership program that isn't geographically specific. You know, for example, Partnership for Peace took in uh, every country in the former Soviet Union, most every country in Europe. Um, the Mediterranean Dialogue is taken in to date, uh, seven North African Middle Eastern countries. The Istanbul Cooperation uh, Initiative takes in four, ultimately six Persian Gulf uh, nations. But the, for the first time ever in 2012 in Chicago, NATO announced a program that uh, took in the globe, and it was appropriately then named Partners Across the World. Partners across the globe. Uh, the seven initial members were all in greater Asia. They are New Zealand, Australia, Asia Pacific, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq. Subsequently, uh, Colombia has been inducted into that program. And all indications are based on uh, war games they've participated in, in the Black Sea and in Ukraine, but also off the west coast of Africa. Brazil seems to be a candidate for that, uh, Senegal and Africa, and a number of others. So, uh, you know, one can laugh at NATO for uh, being overly ambitious and not being able to deliver on its, uh, on its threats. But this, again, we have to recollect. Um, and, and the uh, people who are justifying the use of NATO to fight Russia now, uh, you know, have to recollect that NATO uh, prior to this, long before Ukraine exploded in 2014, had conducted three undeclared and unprovoked wars in three different continents against Yugoslavia in 1999, starting in 2001 in Afghanistan, and then 2011 in Libya. So you're talking about an aggressive global military bloc, nothing short of that. And... Um, I hate to keep belaboring the point, but I think it, uh, you know, it behooved us to uh, clamor for its dissolution long before now, you know, better late than never. But uh, we do need to expose the nature of this thing. It is not an offensive alliance by any stretch of the imagination. It is exploiting the tragedy of Ukraine uh, to build itself, build itself up along what it calls, it presumes to call its eastern flank, which is say from the Arctic Ocean to the, to the Black Sea. Uh, completely affecting a military uh, cordon sanitaire along the western border of Russia and so forth. Again, I wish we had more time to go into this, but we have to see this as a history's largest, history's longest, and the world's first ever global military bloc has to be identified as such. Yeah, I have just only got a, a couple of minutes left, but I, I just wanted to note that the U.S. economic numbers are not good, and, and it's the instinct by NATO to continue to expand running against the people in the current membership, I mean, say members in Europe, uh, in particular, you know, money for human needs more than military aggression, that sort of thing. I mean, will it come undone in that way, or, or you know, or will the U.S. take it to the point of of dragging all the members down? Is this the the route NATO's heading, or or will it ultimately just lead to uh, ultimately to a nuclear Armageddon? Or will it somehow succeed in, in subduing the, the world's uh, thorough force? I mean, is there a happy ending? You know, I, I can't see a happy ending, but uh, you know, if you had asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, you know, mechanisms like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the, at that time, uh, BRIC, uh, South Africa would join later, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China format, and a, a certain other multipolar initiatives, uh, you know, kind of unified in the United Nations and elsewhere 
uh, to try to stop it. No such thing occurred. Nobody, none of the countries involved apparently had the resolve to initiate anything like that. Uh, now, you know, many of them were targeted. China comes to mind most immediately along the lines of what you suggested. Uh, if you're talking about the Ukraine crisis, is there a threat of a uh, miscalculation or otherwise that could result in a nuclear conflagration? I'm afraid there is. And I think that uh, that should motivate us all the more uh, to clamor for the end of the war. Now, we can't affect every country in the world, obviously, but uh, two of the worst uh, violators of this are United States and Canada. Now, I believe Canada has trained more Ukrainian combat troops than any other nation in the world, even more than Britain and the United States. Uh, that's punching above one's weight with a vengeance. And you're a deputy prime minister, I don't have to tell you, is somebody linked to uh, revanchist and even uh, you know, fascistic elements in the Ukraine. So she's hardly a uh, you know, impartial or uh, uh, neutral uh, observer or participant in this thing. So what we need to be doing domestically, of course, is as you state about the economic issue, the United uh, US Congress just passed a uh, $858 billion national defense um, uh, authorization, right? I mean, in real terms, that's, you know, more than anything since World War II. And uh, America, I can assure you, we're hurting here. Uh, you know, anyone who goes to a grocery store in the United States and sees prices going up from 25 to 110%, as I have, those are actual figures. And uh, being hurt in any number of other figures, you know, to spend almost a trillion dollars you know, officially uh, on the military budget is something you would think uh, you could arouse the uh, populace in opposition to, but the, you know, the political structure here, and I would argue, I don't have to argue in Canada you know better than I do, but in Europe, uh, this, you know, these issues don't uh, exist independently of each other. You know, political control, consolidation of you know, what can only be uh, termed totalitarian political structures in, in Western Europe, Canada, the United States, you know, go hand in glove with the war agenda. Okay. Of course, you don't want a population, you know, that's empowered or is able to speak its mind or have a, any effect if you intend to wage warfare. I mean, it's really been a pleasure having you back on again. Thank you, Michael. We've been speaking with author and geopolitical analyst Rick Rosoff. He joins us from his home in Chicago. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The foreign policy of Canada is something we frequently talk about on this program. This at a time when Canada is promoting a much more hawkish stance than we're used to from the Liberal government. Uh, NATO obligations is, of course, a, a major excuse for the expensive fighter jets, warships, and other equipment being contemplated. But we are wanting to consider serious and responsible alternatives to the, the course we are on. We're privileged to have a fellow intelligent and articulate critic uh, speaking to this issue now. Dimitri Lascaris is a lawyer, a journalist, and an activist. He's also an eco-socialist. In 2020, he ran for the leadership of the Federal Green Party of Canada and came in second place, receiving 45.5% of the overall vote. And he's frequently outspoken on the Canadian foreign policy topic. Dimitri, welcome back to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for the very kind words. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk about NATO. Uh, one, our foreign policy is restricted in some sense by our participation in NATO. I mean, with the attacks on Afghanistan, on Libya, and 
now our support for war in Ukraine, it seems as if our foreign policies are somewhat restricted. How, how can we oppose military activities in these countries when, when we're part of them, you know, of, of NATO? I mean, are, are these the essential mm -hmm. reasons why you oppose Canada's involvement in NATO? Well, NATO, first of all, is, I think, uh, a mechanism whereby uh, Western-based and particularly U.S.-based arms manufacturers are enriched. It is very much uh, a scam designed to uh, maximize Western government expenditure on uh, weapons and even weapons of mass destruction. Uh, secondly, by integrating, uh, you know, Canadian and Western European uh, militaries into the much larger and dominant United States military, we've effectively transferred control uh, over uh, our own domestic militaries to uh, the Pentagon. That's just the reality. And uh, and finally, NATO has demonstrated through its destruction of Lib Libya, its bombardment of Serbia, the war in Afghanistan, which was, you know, I think could fairly be described as a 20-year debacle which accomplished little more than enriching the military industrial complex. It's demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's an offensive military alliance. Perhaps there was a point in time, you know, during the height of the cold war when NATO was uh, more or less of a defensive posture, but once the Soviet union collapsed, um, it no longer uh, served the need uh, of defending, uh, you know, NATO member states from potential aggression from a large and formidable opponent in Eastern Europe. It became a, an offensive military alliance. It should have been disbanded at that time. Uh, and instead, what we have done is the exact opposite of what we should have done. We've expanded it and made it more aggressive. So there's a whole host of reasons why we got to get out of NATO. And at the end of the day, I don't think we could really effectively have a sovereign, independent foreign policy as long as our country is subject to the constraints of uh, the NATO charter. Okay, well, uh, yeah, you mentioned like basically signing, basically allowing the Pentagon to dictate our foreign policy. Uh, uh, but, you know, one thing that comes to mind and, and which, what critics would say is that if Canada is in NATO, at least we have a seat at the table, you know, con you know conversing with other non-NATO partners. But if we are outside of NATO, no one would listen to us. You know, we, we, we would go from little influence to no influence at all. I mean, unable to voice opposition to a, a military action by NATO, except in a way that makes zero difference. It makes us feel proud, you know? So, so, does that thought trouble you at all? No, <laughs> to be perfectly candid. I mean, does anybody think that Canada's voice at the table has ever caused NATO to pursue a course of action that the United States government did not want to pursue? Can anybody identify a single instance in which our participation in NATO materially altered, uh, you know, U.S. government policy towards some particular conflict zone in the world. There is no such example. What we've in fact done is outside of the West is made ourselves completely irrelevant because we're viewed as simply being an appendage of the United States government when it comes to international relations as a result of being in NATO. And the other thing I, I want to point out, uh, you know, I had a, I, I had a, the opportunity to discuss this with a foreign policy and military expert from the United States recently, is that, uh, you know, the, the Canada, um, let's imagine a situation in which Canada 
uh, is not part of NATO. So we don't have the guarantee of, uh, you know, uh, intervention by other NATO members in the event that we are subject to attack. Let's ask ourselves in the real world, as a matter of common sense, what would the implications of that be? Uh, there are really only two states at most which have the military capacity to attack Canada because of the natural constraints uh, that we uh, or, or advantages that we enjoy. We effectively are on a huge island called North America. We are separated from Asia by the Pacific. We are separated from Russia by the Arctic Ocean. We're separated from Europe by the Atlantic Ocean. Who has the capacity to actually launch an invasion of Canada? It's really only two states, China and Russia. If you listen to the the, the over a period of decades to the uh, you know the uh, the statements they've made about their intentions geopolitically. There's absolutely no reason to think that either of them has any intention of attacking Canada. But let's imagine that they have they harbor some hidden ambition to do that. They understand perfectly well whether we are in or out of NATO that if they were to attempt to seize Canadian territory and place on Canadian territory. Uh, military forces that are hostile to the United States or perceived by the United States government as being hostile to the United States, they would be obliterated. The United States wouldn't need an Article 5 you know, obligation under the NATO Charter uh, in order to justify military invention, I intervention in the case that a hostile foreign military power tried to position itself on Canadian soil. It would take the liberty on its own to act in defense of its own interests. There's no way that the United States would ever tolerate, with or without NATO, the presence of a significant Russian or Chinese military force on Canadian soil. The mere fact that we are immediately situated to the north of the United States, we have the longest undefended border in the world with the United States, is in and of itself an, an absolute uh, ironclad deterrent to any aggressive military action by the very few foreign powers that actually have the the capacity the military capacity uh to try and launch some kind of you know military aggression against Canada we don't need to be a member of NATO in order to enjoy that protection mm. and and as i said there's absolutely no reason to believe that the chinese or the russians have any interest in attacking canada they've never threatened us they aren't positioning you know military forces on our border uh, there, th this is just fantasy. So we really don't need to be a part of this military alliance in order to protect ourselves. And, and the last thing I want to say about this is if we really are concerned about that, if our government is genuinely concerned about the security of our borders, why are we sending our military hardware and our military personnel to places like Eastern Europe and the Middle East and the South China Sea? Why aren't we leaving them here in this country? Why don't we have them patrolling our territorial waters? Why don't we have them defending our borders if we genuinely feel that we are at threat of some kind of military incursion by a hostile foreign power? But instead, what we do is we take our military assets, which we buy largely from the United States and enrich their military industrial complex, and then we send them far from our own shores and are far from our own territorial waters in order to support military aggression by the United States in far-flung parts of the world. So I think that really betrays the truth about what you know our military is actually doing and what our military budget is all about. It's not about defending our borders. It's about advancing the project of US global hegemony. 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of like you, Ukraine, uh, well, like Canada is to the United States what Ukraine is uh, you know, to, to Russia. I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, an instrument. But I, I wanted to, 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 maybe let's assume that for the moment uh, we had the option of opting out of NATO. How could Canada be a true force of peace in the world today? I mean, maybe take us through a, a few of uh, the current troubled regions. Well, I think the first thing we should do is, is uh, adopt a position of neutrality. Uh, so with respect to the Ukraine war, uh, let's take that position, uh, that, that particular conflict, which is one that has the potential to spiral into a nuclear conflagration and should be of the utmost concern to all Canadians. What we should be doing is saying we are going to provide, uh, you know, all the all the humanitarian aid that we can to the Ukrainian people, directly to the Ukrainian people, not to the Ukrainian government. It is hopelessly corrupt. We cannot trust the Ukrainian government to actually take whatever economic and other resources we lend to it for the benefit of the Ukrainian people and ensure that they are being used for that purpose. It has a long and documented history of uh, extraordinary levels of corruption. So we should help the Ukrainian people directly with massive humanitarian aid. We should open our doors to Ukrainian refugees. But at the same time, we should say we are not going to engage in economic or military warfare directly or indirectly against either side to the conflict. And we offer our services as a neutral arbiter of this dispute. We want to mediate a peaceful resolution of this dispute. You know, that might not earn us a lot of friends in the West, which constitutes a minority of the world, but in the larger world, in the global South, in Asia, which is the rising force in the world today geopolitically, we would earn a tremendous amount of credibility and respect if we adopted that approach. you know. And I think that's essentially what we should do uh, with respect to any major conflict zone, whether we're talking about uh, you know, the war in Yemen, there we should be providing because they're the ones who are suffering most massive humanitarian aid to the Yemeni people. We should be openly uh, offering them the opportunity, the uh, Yemeni refugees to come here. We should not be in any way, shape, or form supporting the Saudi aggression against the Yemeni people. Uh, and we should be uh, acting as a neutral arbiter of the dispute and trying to find ways to resolve it peacefully by means of negotiation. Canada has the ability, uh, you know, we are, we, are, we are a country that has the ability to be completely self-sufficient. We don't need the United States in order to prosper. We don't need to be reliant upon American industry, American technology. Uh, we can do that ourselves. We have all the resources, human and otherwise, in order to be an independent, prosperous nation, completely self-sufficient. We should be adopting neutral uh, positions in 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 these these extraordinarily difficult and uh, painful conflicts, and uh, and and limiting our intervention to the humanitarian level, while at the same time offering uh, our services as a neutral arbiter of these disputes. Yeah, well, you know, changing foreign policy is going to require more than, uh, say, putting a political party uh, advancing withdrawal from NATO to uh, up there to vote for. I mean, changes have to happen in the streets. I mean, there are pressures from from the banks and, and corporate Canada to maintain certain injustices against Venezuela or Haiti, uh, the Palestinians uh, and, and so on. I mean, talk about the, the, the other changes that, that are happening at the domestic level here that, that would allow for a different foreign policy? Well, you know, uh, look, to be perfectly candid about it, without 
without a radical transformation in domestic politics, none of what I've talked about will ever be achieved. Uh, our government is essentially in the hands, uh, it is essentially in, acts in the service of a Western-based oligarchy. I mean, that's just the reality. And unless we dispossess that oligarchy of its power, uh, you know, it's not just, you know, our foreign policy that will remain unjust and will remain at the service of an Anglo-American empire. But domestically, we will never have a truly democratic society. We'll never give meaning to the concept of equality, racial equality, socioeconomic equality, gender equality, sexual equality. These things will never be achieved as long as we continue to be effectively a, a society uh, that operates in service of a Western-based oligarchy. And and to be honest with you, Michael, you know, we chat a little bit about domestic politics and, you know, Green Party politics before we started this discussion today offline. And, um, you know, I'm, I really have become quite skeptical about uh, the ability, uh, the potential of electoral politics to achieve transformational change. At the end of the day, I think it is going to happen in the streets. Uh, it is going to require massive uh, unrest, uh, frankly, a nonviolent unrest, but nonetheless unrest that causes significant costs uh, to the elites. So, you know, these kinds of polite climate protests that we have, where we tell the police where we're going to be and when we're going to be there, and uh, we go through this kind of spectacle, you know, where masses of people are walking peacefully through the streets, but at the end of the day, it doesn't cause any kind of disruption to the economy. It doesn't cause any inconvenience, any pain to the capitalist class. Frankly, uh, and uh, you know, I'm sorry to say, I don't think that's achieved anything. In fact, those types of protests and movements have been completely co-opted uh, by the capitalist elites in this country. We have to cause them pain in their bank accounts, and that means disrupting the economy. A general strike, a series of general strikes, these are things that will get their attention. These are things which will cause us to be heard. If we're not willing to engage in that kind of uh, social activism, I can't see us achieving the kinds of domestic transformation that we need in order to have a just society and a just world. Wow. Dimitri, I really appreciate your, your contribution and uh, I appreciate speaking with you and then basically, basically hearing these, uh, you know, truly radical um, ideas. Uh, but um, it's been great having you on and, and I want to thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me, Michael. We've been speaking with lawyer, journalist, and activist Dimitri Lascaris, uh, speaking to me from Montreal. Uh, his website is dimitrilascaris.org. That was the sounds of a small but dynamic protest outside the art gallery of Hamilton last Monday about noon. It was a peaceful peace demonstration and included a big banner saying Canada should stop supporting NATO's proxy war with Ukraine. To talk about the event and the issues behind it, we are now joined by Ken Stone. He's a veteran anti-war activist, a former steering committee member of the Canadian Peace Alliance, an executive member of the Syrian Solidarity Movement, and treasurer of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War that organized the event. He's also a frequent guest on the Global Research News Hour. Thanks for joining us, Ken. 
My pleasure, Michael. So give us a, a brief summary of Monday's action. Well, there were three pickets at the noontime in front of the Hamilton Convention Center uh, because the Trudeau cabinet had its uh, pre-parliamentary retreat there. So we were the first and uh, there were about uh, 15 or so of us, uh, which was good for a weekday. And uh, we tried to send two messages to the Trudeau cabinet. One was that they should stop supporting the uh, U.S. proxy war in Ukraine and that they should hashtag drop the F-35 deal. Okay. And so uh, we picketed for about half an hour or so. And uh, following us, there was a, a demonstration of migrant workers, um, large one. They were bussed in from Toronto and they were demonstrating on the other side of the building. And we, because most of our people are supporters of labor, we're a coalition of labor people, church groups, and so on, we went over and joined them. And following our oh. demo, yeah, and following their demonstration, there were some anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers who held a protest uh, out front where we were in front of the art gallery. And uh, okay. we had lots of people who uh, took leaflets from us. We ran out of leaflets um, and people were beeping from their cars and, you know, waving at us and giving us the V sign. So we think there's a lot of support out there uh, uh, for e ending the war. Uh, for negotiations for can on Canada's behalf to end the war in Ukraine. Okay. Uh, was there any encounters with any politicians at all, or are they kind of squirreled away in the... Well, there was one politician whom we encountered, a cabinet minister, Mr. Minister Al-Gabra, and he uh, obviously didn't get the memo that he was supposed to walk through the overhead passage from the hotel to the convention center, and he walked right past our demonstration. And so we asked him kindly and peacefully to stop Canada's fueling, constant fueling of this war in Ukraine. And he mumbled something and he scurried away. And that was it. <laughs> well, we listen to the people, they say. But, uh, well, okay, talk about the main message that, that you were trying to talk about. I mean, you were talking about the, the, the fighter jets uh, as well as the, uh, the, the proxy war, right? Right. Well, what we're trying yeah. to... What we're trying to say is that uh, the uh, war in Ukraine is uh, a, a U.S. proxy war. It's not much different from the uh, wars that uh, NATO has waged in Afghanistan, the former Yugoslavia, Iraq, Syria, Libya, etc. Um, we're saying that it's uh, <clears throat> part of U.S. strategy and, and Canadian strategy. As a matter of fact, uh, Christia Freeland said it outright when she presented her budget last spring that the purpose of all this support that Canada has given to Ukraine, $5 billion worth of our taxpayers' money, is to, quote, vanquish Russia. So clearly the U.S. and NATO would like to do to the Russian Federation what they did to the Yugoslavian Federation back in the 90s. They would like to destroy it and gobble up the parts. Um, and... Uh, we think that that is not something that's in the interest of Canadians or Canadian workers. And we think that the uh, instead, um, well, it's not in our interest, especially because this war with all their NATO's uh, donations of tanks and planes, uh, anti-aircraft missile systems could easily spread to other countries in Europe and could even 
uh, morph into a global nuclear confrontation between the superpowers, which could destroy all of human civilization. So it's in our interest for the Canadian government to send its diplomats instead of to um, tea parties and cocktail parties, send them over to Ukraine and try and find a negotiated end to the conflict. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, and is I I, I notice it's an interesting coincidence that this cabinet meeting happened in your own city. Uh, what is it about Hamilton that do you think that that drove the Liberals there? Well, I think that they're controlling for votes. Um, Hamilton is traditionally an NDP city, so they were going to they the various cabinet ministers made funding announcements. It's an attempt to buy votes from Hamiltonians and change the uh, color of the seats here. It's crass politics. So, so what's your... Yeah. Well, was your, uh, your protest, was it part of a, a national or worldwide uh, week of, of protest of, or movement of some sort? Yes, it, it was part of... I'm glad you asked. Uh, we, across North America, there were... 91 demonstrations and pickets uh, against the, the on the theme of and NATO wars abroad. And uh, so we were glad to be part of that. So right across North America and even into Europe uh, in the week of uh, January 15th to 23rd, which coincided with Martin Luther King Day, uh, there were demonstrations and pickets uh, right across uh, Canada, the U.S., and Europe. Yeah. Yes, it didn't seem to come through very well in the mainstream media, as far as I heard. And I imagine it wasn't much better in your well, city. that's the big problem, Michael, because, I, and we can tell you a mi microcosm of it here in Hamilton. Uh, the Hamilton Spectator uh, mentioned in one line that there was an anti-war protest, and they sent a photographer to cover the other two protests, which happened right beside and, and just after ours, they did not cover or, or film ours. Global TV sent a camera to cover the, uh, the cabinet retreat, and uh, they filmed from across the street our entire demo, and then in the evening uh, broadcast, what they, they showed was Prime Minister Trudeau picking up some bagels from a restaurant on Lock Street and, you know, looking in and kissing babies, literally. Um, so, um, this is, uh, this, I would consider this to be censorship on the part of the media. They have clearly decided that they are not going to cover, let us, um, uh, explain our message in their media. Uh, the C we notified all the local media and all the national media before the event, and we phoned them as well. And, uh, you know, for example, CBC Hamilton sent a reporter and they did not even come to our picket. They were they were 50 feet away at this convention center. So clearly there is a there is a concerted effort on the part of the mainstream media to shut us out and not allow our viewpoint that the war in Ukraine is a U.S. proxy war that Canada should not be involved in and that Canada shouldn't be buying these uh, ridiculously, obscenely expensive uh, F-35 fighter jets. They just don't want people to hear about it. Now, there, there were other actions that took place before the event uh, as, as both a protest and, and a way of communicating uh, 
your message. I think there were three letters to the uh, the spec or something like that. Yes, uh, we uh, they we've offered many times to write opinion pieces about the war in Ukraine, and the spec has refused them, which is a change in policy. They used to be much more open to our stuff, but they did publish a letter by me. Uh, about the F-35s, and then they published two very nasty red-baiting and uh, insulting ad hominem attacks on me. So two of our two of our, our supporters wrote in letters, uh, and they got published. Uh, so that was nice. Uh, we also had a demonstration a couple of weeks before at the Art Gallery of uh, Burlington, where Karina Gould, Minister for Families, was having her New Year's levee, and uh, we disrupted her levee, and two of our people held up a banner and delivered a speech. And all this goes on social media, which is great. It's a good thing we have social media, and it's a good thing we have an alternative media like Global Research, because the mainstream media uh, doesn't cover it. The small newspapers in Burlington covered it, like the Burlington Post and the Burlington Today, but the Hamilton Spectator only put it in its online edition. They didn't cover it in the paper. So this is the type of, of uh, censorship that we face all the time, and it's all the more reason for people to go to and support independent media, like global research. Okay. Well, I, uh, I guess I've got about 30 seconds. Uh, are, are you going <clears> to <throat> follow up this action with, with other steps ahead, uh, Zooms or, or anything else uh, to, to follow up? To yes, follow up. well... On the anniversary weekend of the Russian special military operation in Ukraine, there will be a, a weekend of action sponsored by the Canada-wide Peace and Justice Network. And we'll be part of that. We're, we're looking to have uh, probably an in-person meeting with an anti-war speaker. So, uh, yes, this is the, that's our next activity that's coming up, the weekend of the anniversary of the start of this war. Ken, it's pl a pleasure having you on. Thank you for uh, sharing with us. And uh, yeah, take care and uh, good luck on your upcoming actions. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity. We've been speaking with Ken Stone. He is the treasurer for the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War. His website is hamiltoncoalitiontostopthewar.ca. That's our show for this week. Thank you for joining us. Next week, we plan to bring you voices from Ukraine, including a resident in Winnipeg who has some observations about her time in Ukraine that may shock those of you who stand with Ukraine. Also in February, station CKUW, which hosts this program, will be running its annual fund drive where you can donate to help keep the show running on an ongoing basis. Stay tuned with your own donation in the next few weeks. Listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. 
If you need feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.